Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van, but you can call me Mike. Today we'll be talking with Michitake Aso, an associate professor of history at SUNY Albany and author of Rubber and the Making of Vietnam, an Ecological History, 1897 to 1975. The book is part of the University of North Carolina Press's Flows, Migrations, and Exchanges series, devoted to, quote, new works of environmental history that explore the cross-border movements of organisms and materials that have shaped the modern world, as well as the varied human attempts to understand, regulate, and manage these movements. Rubber in the Making of Vietnam draws on Dr. Osso's research in Vietnamese, French, and English language sources from archives in Vietnam, France, United States of America, Cambodia, Singapore, and Switzerland as well as an impressive list of secondary sources. Just in terms of research, the book is quite an achievement, but it also offers a unique unique way of looking at 20th century Vietnamese history. Rubber and the Making of Vietnam also won the Henry A. Wallace Award from the Agricultural History Society. Congratulations. So, Mitch, welcome to New Books in History. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Uh, It's a real pleasure to talk to you, and this is just a fantastic book and, and really great achievement in, in research. So just to start off, um, we'll find out a little bit about you. Please tell us how you came to be a historian of Vietnam, and not just a historian of Vietnam, but a Vietnamese environmental history. How did you come to be an environmental historian? Well, probably the environmental uh, part of that equation uh, came first. I, I was an environmental engineering major at UC Berkeley as an undergrad with an interest in history. And in my junior year, I think it was many years ago now, uh, I took a a course with um, a historian named Carolyn Merchant, who is a well-known environmental historian. Uh, And I just found the topic fascinating. I really, really enjoyed the class. Um, I I was an environmental engineer uh, because of concerns about environmental issues and including climate change. And it struck me uh, after a couple of years uh, in the engineering uh, section of that portion of that, that actually one of the most impressive things to do was to convince people a, uh, that there were real problems and uh, to tell their, their histories, uh, these environmental uh, issues. Now, I, I think that people have been doing excellent work on telling and, and getting the word out. But remember, this was the 1990s. So the, I could say the national awareness of some issues like climate change was not as, as striking. Um, and at the same time that I was doing environmental engineering, I was also taking Japanese history courses, uh, which I was really enjoying. And then I, I would say what finally pulled me over to the dark side of history was the experience of teaching English in Vietnam for two years, um, 
right after I graduated uh, from college. And I did that with volunteers in Asia. And that uh, experience convinced me that Vietnam is a fascinating place. I, I kind of knew something about Vietnam. I was interested in Asia, um, but I had never had a, a course in Vietnamese history. And I was a self-taught Vietnamese language speaker before going there. So um, was really a kind of big discovery for me about the, the details and, and the, the language and the culture there. Uh, so after I uh, finished that um, teaching experience, I thought of applying to graduate school. Now, of course, I wasn't a very uh, convincing candidate, perhaps, for Vietnamese history. So I hadn't majored in history as an undergraduate. Uh, but uh, I was lucky enough to get into University of Wisconsin's History of Science and Medicine program. And it turns out on hindsight, that was uh, probably the perfect place for me. Um, I was working with uh, an environmental historian and historian of medicine and science, Greg Mittman, uh, who uh, is now also doing some work on rubber. Um, also, I was working with uh, Warwick Anderson, who is a historian of medicine, who uh, wrote a, a pioneering book on uh, the history of colonial medicine in the Philippines, and uh, working with uh, Richard Keller, who's a historian of France and his colonies, who's written on environmental and medical history. So coming out of that experience, I really uh, got this idea of looking at um, environment and medicine uh, and working on Vietnam. And of course, Wisconsin is also a good place to do Southeast Asian history. So I was um, able to work with uh, Al McCoy and, and some other folks doing work on uh, Southeast Asian uh, history, and, and they were very open and very supportive of uh, my my efforts in environmental history. Yeah, that, that's great. You could make those two programs within the university come together with the Southeast Asian studies, where they're so strong with Al McCoy, and also with the... Um, the environmental component. And that's also fascinating that you start with the environmental engineering base and then come to history. I think a number of us historians who do environmental issues started as historians and tried to learn the science and the and so forth on the fly. That's great. So I'm curious as to how you define environmental history. And I noticed that the book in the title declares itself to be an ecological history. Is there a difference between the two? Does the terminology matter? Is there is there a distinction here or yeah. Um, so uh, I, I will start, I guess, by talking with environmental uh, history and about environmental history and then explain um, why I decided to choose, in the end, ecological history as the subtitle. Um, so maybe, you know, for some of the listeners who aren't as uh, familiar with environmental history, they may think that rubber seems like a odd choice. It's you know, rubber production and plantations are very much a, seen as a human endeavor. And you know, really the histories of rubber in Southeast Asia have been written for, for decades, treating plantations as human projects and you know, analyze economics of rubber, the labor uh, relations or gender or anti-colonialism, all really uh, human endeavors. Um, there's also been some work on rubber that's looked at um, Consumption, uh, and so I think here of Stephen Harp's work uh, on consumption of rubber in France, marketing Michelin, great book. Um, but I wanted to build my book around, um, well, to, to take into account both humans and non-human nature. 
including the rubber tree, which, uh, you know, as you, as you know, it's, it grows wild in the Amazon. So very much a part of non-human nature there. Um, but also the soils, the animals, the plasmodia that surround this tree. And um, the only the you know, major example of that kind of work for rubber when I started graduate school is uh, Warren Dean wrote a book called uh, Brazil and the Struggle of Rubber. And he called it an environmental history. Um, and, you know, he was one of the early uh, pioneers and really kind of set a, a model to work with and, uh, you know, against. Um, Ann Stoller's book on rubber labor in uh, Southeast Asia, of course, was another book that was I was thinking a lot about, but she doesn't do as much with, with environment. Yeah, that's much more focused on labor and, and empire and post-colonial Absolutely. Yeah. Gender, things like, things mm-hmm. like that, she, mm-hmm. that she's known for. Great, great book. That's the first book, and I think perhaps the least cited of all her works, but I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, in some ways, the, the, the most um, specific, <laughs> less, least theoretical, but, but also, and, and riveting um, for me. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in uh, uh, Vietnamese studies, uh, it's, it, it, in kind of thinking about the environment is, is growing, and so um, what I wanted to do was build on the work of uh, some folks who have, who have come before, um, of course, David Biggs, uh, Pierre Brochu in France, Philip Taylor in Australia, uh, who have done things for the Mekong Delta, uh, Pam McElwee, uh, Frédéric Thomas for forests. Um, and then uh, we also have some younger scholars, uh, Hugh Fung and, and uh, uh, Katie Deet, who are doing some, some really interesting stuff. But you know, no one had, um, uh, done much with rubber. So I thought, look, this is a, it's a, a good field, uh, to look at. And then the, you know, just just to interject that, um, Ben Kiernan's, uh, newer, a huge survey of Vietnamese history, um, has quite a bit of environmental history in there. I was really impressed with that. Yeah, that's right. I think he, he set out to, uh, to include environmental history as, as a, as a focus. And, I, I think what, um, you know, this is where I think that uh, the environmental historians in Vietnam are, are going to uh, move towards. And I mean, there's a range of things they can do. But uh, of course, writing the histories of uh, animals or the histories of uh, forests or water flows, are, you know, is all ecosystems, very important Um the history but of rats. What you do, you know? The history of rats, absolutely, and 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 plague, right? I mean, the, the, this is this is. Um, but you're, but you know, you're, you're reader. I'm shamelessly plugging my own book, but 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 your your work, and and I think uh, yes, you know, both the article and and the uh, the recent uh, book, um, I think uh, actually moves more towards the environmental history that I studied at Wisconsin. And that's being done, I think, much more in American environmental history, which is uh, incorporating environment, uh, environmental history into more established fields of study, right? So uh, labor or uh, the study, historical studies of race or uh, colonialism, nationalism. I think those, uh, I think those subfields need to take into account environment. And I, I just, that's what I think that environmental history can really help to reframe um, our understandings of 
Vietnam uh, and Vietnamese history uh, in in many different fields. So it's not. I don't want to be uh, think of uh, environmental history in a very narrow way and and kind of uh, you know limit it to just what's considered non-human in in Vietnam. I think it's more than that, and that's not you know that's more of a natural history, right? And and people have done right. natural histories, but. Um, the, I think environmental history has a, an important role to play here. Yeah, that's, that's a really, really great point. And, um, you know, it should be one of the categories in the, of analysis, like gender, like class, like race that we we work into our studies. Yeah. Now, the, the question of ecological is um, the one that I was thinking about for a long time. And, you know, it's as you know, it's very hard to come up with titles and subtitles for books. Uh, you, 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 I don't know how you did your, it. But... Your chapter titles are fabulous. Your chapter titles. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. But it, it's very, you know, very stressful and it takes a, go through many iterations. Um, and you know, Warren Dean, of course, as I mentioned, uh, called this book an environmental history. Uh, but I, I ended up setting settling on ecological history. Um, for a couple of reasons. And the first is that I set out to write a history of uh, interactions and processes. And the popular, I would say, understanding, um, even a, a very historical understanding of um, ecological, ecological as an adjective, is much more about the processes, right? Whereas environmental um, suggests perhaps something more static, like a landscape, um, like a, uh, you know, something just around ambient kinds of, of, of factors. Now, that's not to say that environmental histories are, are, are static. They're, they're much, they are very processual and, and they look at things. But I thought eco- ecology would um, bring to, to, to the fore that relation, that emphasis. And there are also um, historical uh, reasons for this. Now, uh, one ecologist I cite in the book, a guy named uh, Jean Adam, uh, talked about colonial ecology and defined it as a study of connections. And this was in the 1930s. And so I think there's a, there's a reason, um, historical justification for that. Now, I have to say that, you know, I didn't set out to write a history of ecology as in a history of the science of ecology in Vietnam. And I think that would be uh, um, a very interesting book. And I think one that needs to be written, uh, but it was, that was a, that would be a um, sort of much narrower uh, definition. So when I'm talking about ecology or ecological history, I mean, both the kind of popular, you know, um, general understanding of ecology is about connections. And then also what the science of ecology studies, which are these, uh, interconnections among, you know, humans and non-humans, or more recently humans, but especially among non-humans and ecosystems and processes. So that that's why I chose ecological. Okay, that's great. So that's why you chose ecological history. So why rubber? And what did you hope to achieve by using rubber as a way to explore 20th century Vietnamese history? Yeah. Um, so I guess there are both uh, personal and academic reasons for this. Uh, rubber, the, the personal side is that when I taught English in Vietnam, I spent the first year and a half in a place called uh, Bien Hoa. And, um, you know, it's a, a now a much a growing city northeast of Saigon uh, in the 60s. 
uh, it was a U.S. Air Force base, uh, has some terrible uh, Agent Orange dioxin uh, related issues left from that time. Um, but it also, during the colonial era or the 20th century, was a center of rubber production. It was one of the first places that rubber expanded to uh, after uh, starting in Saigon. And so when I was living there in 1999 to 2001, of course, there were no rubber trees in the city anymore. Those are long gone. But if you take the bus to go from uh, Binois to uh, Dalat or up into the Central Highlands, uh, you will uh, pass through some uh, rubber plantations still. And to me, that was fascinating. I mean, I'd never seen rubber. It was, you know, I'd grown up in Southern California, so I'd seen orange groves when I was when I was growing up and uh, things like that. Um, but uh, rubber was a new thing, and and you know, just uh, something that I was I was very interested in. But I, I kind of filed it away, um, didn't know what I was going to do with it. And then when I came back to graduate school, and uh, was tossing around. Uh, for a topic, uh, I was uh, very influenced by uh, some works on, um, you know, uh, thinking about uh, labor and uh, history of medicine and environmental history um, that had been uh, coming out in the U.S. context. And it, it just struck me that rubber was one of these places where uh, you had this this uh, agriculture plus you know human uh, labor uh, plus interactions with nature uh, and over a long time period you know the 20th century um, and a very prominent uh, uh, also endeavor so lots of archives which as a historian is quite useful uh, to have to have those and you know the advantage of having been there um, uh, teaching English, I still knew some people and have felt that it would uh, be helpful to to go back there. Oh yeah, the personal connection is fantastic. Yeah, and, and so important in, in Vietnam. Yeah, right. I I mean I I feel so lucky because I you know some of the few people I was able to talk to who were still living from the the colonial era from the 1950s who had worked on rubber plantations. Uh, I met them because, uh, thanks to Vietnamese language teachers and uh, friends from uh, Bien Hoa, who, you know, I would have never been able to track down these people, but they they knew these people. Um, so, and, you know, and then at the time when I started also, there there really uh, wasn't, you know, there's kind of the standard accounts of Martin Murray's book uh, chapter from the 1980s, an article in the 1990s, and uh, Chen Tu Bin's work on on rubber. So, I, you know, I just felt that that story had become a little bit ossified and people just talked about rubber and then, and that was it. Then they moved on. Right. Um, and, and in the French literature, I think it's a, it was a little bit more lively. Uh, Christophe Benoit, who uh, wrote a, a very uh, brilliant chapter on rubber on his, you know, he wrote a dissertation on French agronomy, um, really inco- incorporating uh, Foucault into, uh, you know, thinking about uh, agriculture and uh, I was kind of an inspiration, but, uh, you know, his, his work hadn't really, um, had much effect, uh, on Vietnamese studies, at least at, in, mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it, it, the book fills a great spot in the uh, historiography. Um, just one quick question about the, the title and the framing of the, the time period. Why do you set the, uh, the years of your study as 1897 to 1975? 
Yeah. So um, I wanted to have a long time frame, uh, at least uh, you know as as, uh, as long as possible uh, to look at many different changes. And uh, eighteen ninety seven is uh, just simply put when uh, the first samples of uh, rubber are sent to. Uh, Vietnam, uh, or let's say the first heavy Brazilianses trees are um, uh, shipped to Vietnam. At least you know that's uh, what's recorded. Uh, and and heavy Brazilianses is the species of tree from Brazil that gets transferred to uh, or stolen from Brazil by a guy named Henry Wickham, and then spread in the the British Empire. Uh, it was an act of espionage, correct? Oh yeah, yeah. No, it was, it was heroic from the British point of view. But uh, uh, Joe Jackson has a nice book that you know shows, uh, and others show basically how it's it's bio theft, <laughs> and he knew it. He knew it at the time, right? <laughs> um, so that that rubber tree. This is also occurring at the height or or the the depth of the horrors of the Belgian Congo in 1897, right? 1900. Yeah. Yes. All yes. At the same time. Yes, uh, absolutely. And, and the horrors of the Belgian Congo, uh, the, the peak of Amazonian rubber, uh, wild rubber uh, gathering and production, and the, just the, the point when uh, rubber in Southeast Asia is about to take off uh, on plantations. So um, in the Dutch East Indies and British Malaya, especially. Um, and then 1970. 1897 really is a global moment for yeah. production from wild collecting into plantations that take a few years to come online. But we have this, again, this global moment of, uh, of change in regards to rubber, correct? Absolutely. I would say maybe, you know, the 1890s. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and it takes a while for the rubber industry to take off in, in Vietnam and, and then later Cambodia, because, uh, French investors are actually more interested in just putting their money into um, uh, British uh, plantations um, and Dutch plantations at first. And so, uh, you know, it takes actually until the 1910s and 1920s for rubber in Vietnam to to really take off. Um, but the 1897 point marks also some of the early discussions of how to uh, create the conditions for rubber, right? And already it's it's there is some interest in some idea that rubber might take off. And so, uh, you know, it's the, the example is being set by the British and the Dutch. So the French start to, to think about that. Um, and then of course, 1975 is the, the ending point, uh, of the Vietnam war and a time when, uh, also known as the American war in Vietnam. <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. The American war in Vietnam. Um, the, the Americans are largely gone by, you know, by then, uh, there's a you know a few uh, hardy souls and um, people who are you know evacuating uh, themselves right up at the end. Um, but uh, you know, 1975 uh, from from the Vietnamese perspective is the year in which uh, well reunification and whether you call it the liberation of Saigon or the fall of Saigon happens. Um, that's when uh, the um, socialist uh, regime in the North, the communist regime uh, actually takes physical control of the plantations. Right. And so for in terms of plantations, that's a new chapter. And I think that there's actually work, a lot of work left to be done on the post 1975 to the present 
uh, in terms of rubber plantations. But my my book was already too long, and so I need to stop. <laughs> 1975 was a moment in which there was a very big transition that, um, you know, there wasn't room to cover. And is there an archival issue around the date of 1975? I mean, I my work is much earlier in the 20th century, and I in the archives I couldn't look at anything after 1954 um, for uh, for working on Hanoi, Northern Vietnam. So after 1975, are the archives less open? Actually, interestingly, not. Um, and this is where uh, perhaps choosing a topic like rubber gave me uh, an entree in the sense that I, one of the things that I, I was really interested in doing was uh, looking at the archives in, in Hanoi um, archives. Well, number one for the colonial era, which uh, I know you have extensive experience in and archives number three for the uh, post uh, 1945, post 1946 era, uh, which gather the Viet Minh, and then the DRV records. And actually, I, I was told <laughs> by uh, someone working at the archives when I first showed up and I told my I told him my topic was rubber. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, there's there's nothing on rubber in here. Uh, you know, this is archives number three. We 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 don't have anything on rubber. Um, of course, uh, turns out that there were things on rubber. Um, the Hanoi, uh, Viet Minh and Hanoi was was uh, keenly interested in, in rubber for reasons that are in the book uh, and, and had some uh, documentation that uh, proved you know, interesting. Um, and that continued up until, until 1975. Um, actually, most of the documentation at archive number one in terms of rubber uh, was from the first Indochina war. Um, and then for the, the Vietnam war, the, the American war in Vietnam. Um, a lot of that material uh, was held in uh, the archives in the South. Uh, so archive number two in Saigon and the uh, national archives in the U S uh, so the, the archives in college park. Um, and so uh, that, you know, those records brought me up until 1975. Now, in fact, after 1975, there are, records of the nationalized uh, communist controlled rubber companies um, sitting in archives number two that as far as I know, have really not been looked at. And uh, that would be, again, I think an interesting project just to go through. And I, you know, I sampled some of those um, archives just to kind of get a sense of where uh, plantations were, uh, what, how they were functioning during, um, you know, the economic embargo era, um, Pre Doimai, post Doimai, uh, pre you know 1986, post 1986, but really just a smattering of uh, I looked at a smattering of records, and I think a, a kind of uh, systematic study of those um, archives held national in, in two archive center two would be um, quite interesting. Well, I hope there's some graduate students listening whose ears just perked up. They may have a, a dissertation project you can follow in the in your footsteps here. <laughs> Trying to sell it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so do you see this book as fitting into the growing field of commodity history, such as Sven Beckert's Empire of Cotton or uh, Kurlansky's pop histories of salt and cod and so many other books on things like oil, spices, wood, and so forth? Or is this something other than commodity history? 
Yeah, yes and no, I would say. I, you know, I sent out, as I said, to write a environmental or ecological history of Vietnam. But um, the question at the beginning was what to specifically concentrate on. And rubber, rubber plantations uh, seem to be a good way, a good topic, in part because they tapped into uh, several existing conversations and, and bodies of literature and could inject something new. So I saw that commodities literature as part of that, uh, as one of the conversations where rubber uh, had been talked about a lot, um, but also could be talked about in environmental terms. Um, and I was actually a bit cautious about fo- focusing on a commodity, partly because I wasn't, I'm, you know, my training wasn't in commodity history. Um, I, you know, it wasn't set out to do that. That's not, you know, what I was really thinking about. Um, and it, you know, some of the popular histories of commodities, I, th- I, I thought it kind of hit its peak, <laughs> you know, the salt and cod stuff and, uh, didn't really do it for me. So, um, I, you know, I was, I was suspicious, I think of commodities as a, as an approach. Uh, but then also, I, you know, right when I was starting grad school, I read, um, Bill Cronin's uh, classic Nature's Metropolis and some of the, you know, approaches in environmental history that have followed that, that use commodities as a jumping off point to talk about ecological processes. So I think, I think there are types of commodity histories that work, can work very well environmentally. I think you can also do a commodity history that has nothing to do with the environment. And I, you know, I wanted to, so I, I was trying to do uh, the commodities, the history that had a lot to do with uh, the environment. Um, now, like I said, I, I also got lucky in the sense that um, commodities is one of these sort of uh, recurring uh, topics. And there was a um, fellowship, postdoc fellowship at the Institute of Historical Studies at University of Texas, Austin, uh, to work on the history of commodities. And so uh, I really uh, lucked out. This is while I was writing my book in 2014-15. And so I was able to work with um, the uh, Institute's then director was a, a historian of Brazil named Seth Garfield, who was working on a history of the Amazon that uh, centered around uh, uh, rubber and it was, you know, during World War II. And he was um, doing a lot with environmental history. So he was very helpful uh, to, to, to talk with. Uh, so, mm-hmm. I, you know, that's, that was my approach. And I, I do have to say, though, too, fun in, in also in interesting ways, um, commodity like rubber, at least, especially, I think it wasn't very like, and, and probably won't be very hot as a, as a, as a topic. And so, um, I was happy to do something where I, I wasn't necessarily stepping on other people's toes. And so it wasn't something that was, uh, kind of time sensitive in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that one of the many, uh, achievements of the book is the way that it can appeal to a, a wide range of readers those interested in Vietnamese history, environmental, ecological history, labor history, commodity history. So it, 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 it satisfies many uh, different uh, constituencies, so to speak. Um, so I'm going to ask you to walk us through the book. Uh, you have it organized into three sections, Red Earth, Gray Earth, Forest Without, Bur- Without Birds, Rubber Wars, and these are of one, three, and three chapters respectively. And what's great is these chapters are both chronological but also thematic. But before we get through the uh, the actual book, let's let's spend a little bit of time in the plantations and 
Can you briefly tell us about the plantations? Where were they in Vietnam and Cambodia? Why were they situated on these sites? And what's the ideal terrain for a rubber plantation? So the rubber uh, plantations start uh, in around 1897 on experimental stations. Um, There's a a couple uh, near, fairly near Saigon, uh, one in uh, Nha Chang, where uh, your, uh, Alexander Yersen, uh, one of the famous uh, colonial medical doctors, has set up a, a Pasteur Institute. Um, but the the majority of rubber uh, begins in the 19, uh, 1900s and 1910s on the gray earth, uh, what we call gray earth soil or gray soils, surrounding uh, Saigon and even part of Saigon. And if I remember uh, correctly, there was even, I think it was a, a convent in Saigon that was using growing rubber uh, to uh, earn some, some cash uh, to you know, help themselves financially. So you could actually find rubber trees within the city uh, limits in the early 20th century. Um, and the same was true of uh, Bien Hoa. And now these Ecologically, uh, these soils are, uh, these gray earth soils are composed mostly of river deposits uh, from the Saigon River, uh, from the uh, uh, Dong Nai River, and uh, lots of sand, which gives them their, their gray character. So they uh, drain uh, well, uh, fairly easily, uh, but they don't have a lot of nutrients. And one of the problems with rubber trees is also that they often uh, especially when they're very young, uh, blow down uh, in storms. And so when uh, you know, heavy winds would pass through, um, these grayer soils would uh, not hold the trees uh, down very efficiently. Um, now, they, uh, of course, these early ap- uh, efforts rubber planting on the gray earth happened because the, uh, of the infrastructure that was needed to collect the latex, to process it, uh, you know, once you have the sort of uh, tappers uh, draining the trees and collecting the latex, it has to be uh, mixed with uh, some various chemicals, including uh, acetic acid to coagulate um, and then have it dried out uh, and then shipped off. And, and almost all, all of the rubber produced in Saigon was just shipped to Singapore, where it was uh, joined the, the market there and bought and sold uh, by, by the world uh, market. So. Um, Saigon offered the port and the facilities, and so did Bien Hoa uh, in the in the early uh, years. Also, it happens that labor uh, is uh, more available at this time in those places. Uh, local labor, people Vietnamese who are living there, uh, and a lot of the early planters are uh, people who are uh, higher up in colonial society. So, uh, French engineers or retired engineers, retired government officials. Um, one way to think of this is the uh, image of the planter uh, Mata uh, in the film uh, Indochine, which uh, Catherine Deneuve uh, plays a character, uh, right? The plantation um, owner, and that's her character in the in the film is based on Madame de la Suchère, who is uh, the, the the wife of a planter owner who dies, uh, of a planter who dies, and then she takes over the plantation. Um, so that's a kind of like the model of the early 1910s plantation. But as those lands are taken and the rubber boom um, of the 1920s uh, takes off, and 
you have you know, a lot of multinational co- uh, companies start to move in. So you have the French and the Belgians uh, coming in, and they are looking for uh, large tracts of land. And uh, this is where the you know the governing uh, uh, and economic logic uh, come together to push plantations out onto uh, what are largely red earth uh, soils or red soils um, in near the the foothills of the Central Highlands out into what's now Tainin or uh, Binzung uh, province, Damnai province, Binfuk, uh, sort of that um, what's called uh, Damnambo or the the uh, uh, southern uh, east southeast region, um, and this uh, these plantations kind of they they, f- they fulfill a dual function. They they both uh, help the colonial government explore and and s- what the colonial government wanted to do with the the ethnic uh, peoples living there, the mo- so called Montagnards uh, in the region, including people uh, called the Steng and the Fom, uh, but also um, you know there were some uh, uh, ethnic uh, Chinese out in the area. So um, the colonial officials, you know, they're always on a st- shoestring budget. And so the plantations kind of promise to give some uh, financial uh, incentive, a uh, way to extend government into these areas. And also, uh, you know, to to uh, develop or what's called at the time mise en valeur uh, to, for the region, to, to bring this to the region. Um and of course, the plantations are, are interested in uh, earning profits and uh, fairly, uh, in, you know, cheap land um, in, in almost, you know, given away, but very, very cheap, sold very, very cheaply. Now, the, the big losers in this process as plantations move out and away from um, Saigon and uh, Binhuan, the, the, that area, to the Red Earth are both the groups living in the region, as you can imagine, and also the laborers on these new uh, plantations. And so the groups living in uh, the region suffer from, you know, what we now, what we call today land grabbing, essentially. So the, you know, the government, uh, colonial government uh, sometimes professes you know, to want to protect these groups and they, they say, look, we, we want to uh, protect their land. Um, but most of the time they're just either not willing to, or not able to protect uh, they weren't uh, able to do that, and so uh, these these groups uh, were, all, you know, largely at the mercy of uh, plantations. Uh, another reason why these groups were uh, so uh, kind of easily targeted is that their agricultural system was largely based on Sweden agriculture, and you know, Sweden agriculture is this process of uh, cutting down trees, burning them. Uh, and then uh, uh, planting things on that on the burned plots, and then uh, moving every uh, couple of years through uh, cycles, basically that travel through the forest. In sharp contrast to um, wet rice agriculture, which is settled, and the same rice paddies are worked for uh, generations, if not centuries. Correct? Yes, absolutely right. And and you know because of that contrast, the the law is actually not set up. Uh, land ownership is not set up to recognize uh, in the same ways um, the Sweden agricultural ownership of land and rice agriculture. Now, of course, rice agriculture, as as Brochure and others have shown, is that, um, you know, those lands can be easily stolen as well. Uh, but with Sweden agriculture, um, you have, you know, low population densities, 
Uh, you have also this idea that Sweden uh, is uh, ecologically uh, disastrous. And so you see foresters, uh, Frederick Thomas has shown how foresters at the time argued that Sweden uh, lost, you know, what would cost the colonial state uh, wood and, and resulted in erosion. And so um, the, you know, the colonial government was uh, pressured by that argument. Of course, it's ironic because the, the very same practices that, you know, foresters were complaining about in terms of Sweden were used to create plantations themselves, right? Uh, you would, how would the plantation be created? Well, they would cut down the forest, burn it, and then plant rubber trees, right? Uh, you know, the only difference might be in terms of erosion. But, um, you know, and often the same people are doing that, that cutting and burning. So, 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 but you have this, you know, forester idea that um, the, the, the Sweden is bad uh, and the planters are arguing that there are, there's nobody on these lands um, even though they know that's not true. And so the, you know, the people who are living there um, essentially most of the time lose out um, their lands to these plantations. Now, in yeah, terms of... This, this all gets us yeah. into uh, chapter one, which is Civilizing Latex. Um, that's the title, chapter one, Civilizing Latex. So what, what does this chapter tell us about plantation agriculture and French visions of modernity? You've been touching on this, but if you could just really lay this out, how did how did the French see their plantations? Yeah, um, so that that's I think that uh, you know the, I want to get with the the idea of civilizing uh, and and really bring that up in terms of latex because uh, again of this this uh, dual uh, you know use of uh, plantations to both extend uh, government and uh, infrastructure into uh, this uh, region of Vietnam that had been uh, largely, you know, left alone by the colonial state in, until the early 20th century. Um, and, uh, y- you know, this sort of economic project, right? So in the first chapter, I'm arguing that the plantations both uh, benefit from uh, interest in this region and uh, attempts to uh, create infrastructure, roads, new roads uh, into the region. Um, you have rivers and, and those are useful uh, for the early transport, um, but you, you still need uh, uh, road uh, networks. Um, and on the you know uh, reverse side, the plantations are helping to uh, extend governance uh, into these regions. And so, uh, you know, by setting up, and what, what often happens is that these plantations become uh, states within states, and and sometimes colonial officials complain about this that you know they they interfere actually with road building and and other uh, colonial laws because they're so uh, such so much like uh, uh, fortresses. Um, but this initial uh, uh, movement into the Red Earth region is really driven by um, both ideology, uh, right, mise en valeur, civilizing mission. Um, and the the practicalities of uh, latex and the, the economics of making a profit. So that's that's where I'm going with the, the first chapter and showing the kind of the the transition from um, what you can say as a pre plantation landscape to a post plantation landscape. Yeah, which feeds right into the uh, the next question about I have for you about the the title of the second section. Uh, it's this interesting title: Forest Without Birds. 
where did this term come from and, and why did you pick it? And what, is it what does it mean? So um, the, the term actually comes from uh, the exact term forest without birds comes from uh, Justin Godard, who is a, a former uh, French minister of health. Um, and he visits plantations. He visited plantations in the 1930s in uh, French Indochina as part of his fact-finding mission uh, for the Commission Garnu. And so he, you know, and this is this is something his his notes have been published in in French, and this is a, a poetic description that he comes up for the plantations because uh, he's you know he's somewhat worried by the the. Uh, the, the nature on these plantations he can't quite put a put a hand, finger on it, but um, he's he's you know unsettled by uh, what's going on here. And the problem, I, I thought there was a very nice description for plantations, forests without birds. Um, it also you know refers to sort of uh, ways that plantations now are often um, planters try to uh, count them, companies try to count them as forests uh, for carbon emission purposes. Um, but you know, they, of course, they're they're plantations. So it's nothing to do with each other. Um, but a lot of people said that that title was way too abstract uh, for the book, and that people would expect more <laughs> birds in the book. So, and of course, there there are not too many birds in the book. Um, so oh, I so went, you, you played with that as a as a book a book title. That's great. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I love the term because you know it, pre, it prefigures Rachel Carson, so it has this link to. Uh, you know, people more familiar with American environmental history, and uh, I found it such a uh, so fascinating. Um, in the in chapter two, which is the first sec- first chapter in this section, um, it's titled "Cultivating Science." What are what are you talking about here when you speak of cultivating science? So, the agricultural sciences, uh, things like well, at the time called agronomy and. and um, really established in French Indochina about the same time that uh, rubber plantations are being created. So you have to start to have uh, schools, experimental stations. And so I argue in that chapter that uh, the colonial economy, uh, colonial agronomy and colonial plantations are uh, inextricably linked uh, at that time um, and and through that that process. And I, I use the term rubber science uh, to to refer to those two, and this rubber science then uh, structures the understandings of rubber. It uh, encourages uh, large foreign uh, plantations uh, to come in and um, you know grow rubber. Uh, it, most of the science that's being produced is uh, useful for uh, large monocultures rather than uh, smallholders. So there's not much, uh, really, no. Uh, outreach in the early 20th century to try to promote, uh, say, uh, Vietnamese smallholders of rubber, um, a process that happens in the Dutch East Indies uh, and uh, British Malaya to a much larger degree. Um, and so that capture, in some sense, of of the two, the agricult- colonial agriculture and um, colonial plantations, is not broken until anti-colonial and independence movements, right? And so that's that's really, that forms the, the, the basis of that. I also uh, put this chapter here uh, because this is the, you know, the kind of next step in forming a plantation, right? So you have the kind of the first, the initial conditions in, in chapter one, and then uh, 
what do you have to do next? Or what do the rubbers do? Ne- rubber planters uh, do next? They they uh, gradually accept the the necessity of of um, uh, agricultural science in their endeavors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then uh, in chapter three, we see another uh, issue that uh, science has to attend to and, and medicine has to attend to, and that's the impact of various diseases, especially malaria. So can you say a few words on the history of disease and um, what did the French planters uh, and the, more importantly, the Vietnamese laborers face on the plantation in terms of disease? Yeah. Um, so the, uh, as you, as you know, history of medicine is a, a quite a important topic in uh, colonial history. And uh, in terms of the plantations, uh, this is r- really the, um, you know, the, the kind of, as plantations move out to the red earth region, uh, malaria becomes a huge problem. And, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a disaster uh, in, in the 1920s. In uh, this um, happens for uh, a few reasons. So first of all, uh, these areas in the, the red earth region uh, which are farther from the urban centers of Saigon and Bienhua, are um, generally, uh, you know, have more uh, either primary or secondary uh, growth forest. So uh, they have to be uh, cleared to uh, create a plantation. And while some of this pl- clearing work is done by uh, uh, montagnards who are, you know, accustomed to, more accustomed to this kind of work, uh, a lot of it is done by uh, Vietnamese laborers. and. Um, as the plantations uh, get established in the Red Earth region, uh, they have almost an insatiable demand for, for labor, right? More than uh, can be provided through the South uh, alone. And so the planters uh, try to uh, try many different solutions to try to import laborers. Um, uh, some, they even try to import them from Java, from the Dutch East Indies, uh, from other places in, in Southeast Asia. Um, but what the planters finally settle on is uh, encouraging uh, migration from uh, northern Vietnam and uh, north central Vietnam. And these migrants, uh, you know, another kind of advantage for the planters of creating these large plantations out in the middle of nowhere is that uh, they can largely charge uh, whatever they uh, they can largely pay whatever they want uh, for for uh, labor, only you know minimally regulated by the state. Um, they also, laborers have very little recourse. Uh, it's very hard to leave these plantations in the middle of nowhere, uh, far from, uh, relations, uh, that the, the laborers have and the, the natural, I would say the, the non-human nature part of this equation is that these red earth soils are very ecologically, very different from the gray earth soils. So, uh, these red earth soils are, um, to, made from, uh, uh, decaying volcanic deposits and so they uh, contain a lot of clay uh, which means that they are they are more uh, nutrient rich but they also don't drain uh, very well and so when uh, you know and I, I explain this in the book but when the uh, forests are cut down uh, you have large standing puddles of water of course it's raining you know a lot in this region uh, large puddles of water, uh, perfect breeding uh, spaces for uh, species, particular species of mosquitoes, and actually the 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 timing makes a difference. And when you go from deforestation to um, 
you know, uh, unforested land to reforested or replantation uh, land. And uh, along with the um, background occurrence of uh, Plasmodia uh, falciparum in, in the populations, local populations, the ethnic minorities, uh, all of these come to come together and you have what are called at the time epidemics of malaria. And, um, you know, in the, especially in 19, late 1920s, uh, you know, some, some months you have up to 50% of the plantation workforce uh, die from uh, diseases. And it's not just malaria. Obviously, it's just because they're weak, they're underfed, they're overworked. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're, the housing is, is shoddy and terrible. Um, but the thing that, you know, finally kills them, uh, is, is often malaria. And so we, you know, I think as historians talk a lot about, um, what, you know, David Del Testis wrote to me and, you know, once the, the lick of the whip as being the most important thing in the plantations. And, um, it's very picturesque, but actually the, uh, malaria, uh, that occurs in the 1920s is, um, more the, real, the real killer, yeah, right? yeah. yeah, enabled yeah. by the plantations, of course, right, but right. The real the, killer. Uh, colonial modernization projects creating unintended health con- uh, crises. Hmm. Huh? Where do we see that? <laughs> another, another, another great <laughs> book topic. Okay, chapter four is called "Turning Tropical," and it considers the transformation of colonial science. You've touched on this uh, previously, but could you just say a few words on that and what your argument is in this chapter? So. You know, if, if you're looking at the book as kind of layer upon a layer of, of um, history, right? The past. This is uh, this is the the chapter in which I uh, look at a, a layer that uh, marks the shift in in some ways from uh, colonial science to uh, what's more often called tropical science, um, and this occurs in both uh, medicine and agriculture, which I examine, um, but you know, to uh, geography, right? To tropical geography, Pierre Guru is part of the shift. You can see it in ecology, tropical ecology. And in this chapter, um, I, I trace out the, I, and I argue that older uh, uh, racial categories that were so prominent in the colonial sciences um, are imported into the tropical sciences. And although tropics, the tropical sciences um, speak more about the environment. Um, they speak more about uh, you know, populations and um, things that I, I would say are less overtly racial in their uh, conception. Uh, they are still uh, informed by uh, colonial practices. Obviously, during uh, the 1930s, these are still very much uh, uh, colonial sciences. Um, and that, you know, that, that carries on in, in that tradition. So um, I'm looking at the ways in which, um, in some ways, uh, tropical medicine and agriculture are responding to uh, uh, emerging out of uh, efforts to respond to plantations as phenomenon, right? The final section has three chapters, uh, the first of which is entitled Maintaining Modernity. And this chapter talks about the role of the plantations in the first Indochina War, the Vietnamese struggle for independence from the French. Um, what can you tell us about the role of plantations in this war? So um, the role of plantations uh, is, and what I argue in this chapter, is that they 
they have become landscapes that start to shape uh, political and uh, well military in the sense uh, activity, and um, they are uh, have been established and and really you you see the implications of what it means to have uh, plantation uh, agriculture in uh, in Vietnam, and th- that's both true symbolically and materially. So uh, symbolically, the plantations are, again, still viewed by the French as being super modern. Um, uh, Paul Moose talks about this in his, his book, uh, you know, Sociology of a War, uh, and the French can point to hospitals and this kind of infrastructural modernity that uh, colonialism is supposed to bring to uh, to French Indochina, to, uh, to Vietnam. Um, but the uh, argument uh, that the Viet Minh are making is that these uh, plantations are symbolic of colonial horrors. And this includes labor abuse. This includes the uh, taking of colonial uh, resources, the taking of resources, even if they're either natural or uh, created resources out of Vietnam, uh, and enriching the the metropole, um, and so there's a there's a big struggle there in in terms of that symbolic understanding of plantations. Now this actually uh, leads into military strategy uh, during the First Indochina War from the documents I, I was looking at in the archives number three, where initially in 1946, 47, 48, the Viet Minh leaders see uh, adopt a, a scorched earth policy. And uh, Pierre Brochet has argued about this uh, for, for other places in Vietnam. And the idea is to, to burn it down, right? And it's kind of an anarchist approach to, um, to colonialism. Just uh, get rid of everything and start anew, wash it away in blood, right? And this works for a while. Um, and, but, you know, as, as the war goes on, and especially in the South, in the plantations there, the Viet Minh are not doing uh, super uh, well. Um, so there's, there's that aspect of it. Uh, but then also in, in around the 1950s, um, at least for plantations, now this may be true of other uh, economic uh, infrastructure, other economic projects or not, but at least for plantations, you see a shift in the rhetoric. And the, the Viet Minh start to talk about the need to uh, preserve this economic infrastructure because it will become national, right? And um, whether that's for, uh, you know, a growing sense of um, perhaps optimism that the French will eventually leave, um, you know, the, the victory of the PRC, the, the People's Republic of China in uh, 1949, and, you know, sort of the, the growing resources that the Viet Minh have. Um, there's this idea though, that starts to, at least among the leadership, uh, uh, circulate that you can take the plantations for hostage. You can, you know, take rice, you can take medical, medical equipment. You can even take latex and sell it on the black market. Um, or you can, you can burn latex, but don't necessarily destroy the trees because those will be, uh, what, uh, is left over. And that's, you know, when the Viet Minh take control of the country, um, They'll need to have some kind of economic, uh, you know, infrastructure to to rebuild and to run the country. Um, now, this is not necessarily making it 
these ideas are not necessarily making their way down to the ground level and the cadre on the on the you know in the plantation. So you do still see obviously uh, sabotage and all kinds of activities taking on, but the the idea is to push towards more of a kind of um, drawing from the resources of the plantations without uh, completely and, ma- and making the French want to leave without completely destroying them. The other way that plantations are shaping the first Indochina War is you already start to have um, the Viet Minh realizing that they're they are actually a very useful um, fighting space, and so um, French planters are encouraged by the French military to, you know, build towers and control the plantation space. And they're told by the French military that they have to pay for all of that. Um, But that is not a super effective way to run a plantation. And, you know, because plantations are so big, because they were encouraged to be so big during the colonial era, they're actually really hard to control, um, especially along the fringes. So, you know, if you've ever been on a plantation, uh, you can't see you know, you don't have unfettered horizontal sight. Uh, you don't have, uh, uh, you can't see from above if the, if the leaves are there. So it's hard to survey from planes. Um, and so this, uh, the, the, you know, fighting is different than it is during the Vietnam war, but still the, the plantations can and start to begin to serve as these, um, you know, places of refuge and, and, uh, places where the Viet Minh uh, can start to uh, take advantage of the, the plantation uh, space. So this takes us into uh, chapter six, which is decolonizing plantations. And this is the, the fate of the plantations once the war was over. So uh, Vietnam is no longer under French rule. What happens to these former French plantations? Or should I say, do they become former French plantations in post-colonial Vietnam and South Vietnam? No, largely no. Um, there uh, are... Of course, some Vietnamese who uh, get into ownership uh, of plantations after the First Indochina War. Uh, there's, uh, especially under Mo Dien Diem after 1954, uh, there's a rhetoric of national uh, development. There's a rhetoric of uh, Vietnamese owning uh, economic, um, you know, infrastructure in, in uh, South Vietnam and the Republic of South Vietnam. Um, but by and large. The plantations remain, especially the large plantations, remain in French hands. So uh, things like Michelin, um, there are other uh, plantation groups that uh, continue. Now, this is a problem in some ways for Ngo Dien Diem. He's very, he's very much caught between uh, the nationalist rhetoric um, that he's running and, and you know, very much uh, believes and acts on uh, in a number of ways and uh, the need to maintain some kind of economic earnings for the Republic of Vietnam, um, especially in, as as the National Liberation Front in the in the nineteen sixties, early nineteen sixties, starts to ramp up its activity. Uh, rice production starts to uh, decline quite uh, precipitously, and so rubber becomes in the nineteen sixties uh, the number one earner. And the in this way, the the French uh, especially the large plantations are um, somewhat indispensable, right? Too big f- to fail under Ngo Dien Diem, uh, and he can't really, uh, uh, even though he's uh, running the head of the government, he he's limited in terms of the no- options he has um, 
and he always is reassuring the plantations that he's not going to nationalize them. Um, now, this uh, dynamic interacts with the arrival of the Americans and this uh, new you know, Cold War ideology of development, which a lot of historians have looked at in terms of South Vietnam and the importance of development ideology. Um, now, most of those historians have focused on rice growing uh, places, the Mekong Delta, the strategic hamlets. Only uh, really Stan Tan and, uh, uh, has looked at the Central Highlands as a, a site of development ideology. Um, and so the, the rubber plantations are, of course, swept up into this ideology. Now, what is sh- this chapter shows is that older uh, influences of Maison Valer, development, civilizing mission, actually reform and continue to, to uh, adjust the, the development uh, project and, and kind of influence its, its execution in the 1960s, right? So the, the pressures on Nodian Ziem, uh, these older ideologies that have formed certain relationships, ecological relationships in the land, um, make it difficult to run development in the way that development planners wanted to. So they, you know, development uh, Americans especially come in and say, "Look, you gotta, you gotta make a lot of smallholders here." You know, forty acres and a mule kind of ideology, right? And, and uh, in terms of farming in South Vietnam, and and, and that doesn't work for plantations. They are hard to change once they're in uh, in that kind of mode. Right, right. So it's so fascinating that the this uh, period, the late 1950s, is this this golden age of the plantations because there's disaster on the horizon. And in your last full chapter, Militarizing Rubber, you talk about the impact of the steadily ramped up violence of uh, the American military in the Second Indochina War. So what's what's the fate of the rubber plantations during the American War from 1964, 1965 to uh, uh, January 1973? Uh, largely destruction. They are uh, become, you know, the, the sites of fierce battles. Uh, and even more than the first Indochina war during, uh, the, the Vietnam war plantations are key strategic sites. So, um, you, you have, the, and the reason for this is that they sit at the end of the Ho Chi Minh trail, right? So you have the Ho Chi Minh trail going through Laos, coming through Cambodia and basically emptying out into South Vietnam. Uh, you know, it's a number of paths, obviously it's not just, just one like unified trail, but um, largely emptying out like, you know, a river in a, in a Delta uh, through the plantations. And so the, you know, the headquarters of the resistance uh, to, you know, the, the headquarters, that's the Cosbin that's joining the uh, national liberation front and the North Vietnamese uh, commanding leadership is based in and around the, the rubber plantation region. Um, part of that is again, because of the Ho Chi Minh trail, the sighting of the Ho Chi Minh trail. Uh, another part of that is because they have the border there. So you have this Cambodia, Vietnam border, which uh, Cambodia is technically neutral. And so the, you know, uh, the, the, the communists use that, uh, neutrality. And, uh, of course, you know, they're, they're breaking the neutrality. Uh, us is breaking the neutrality the republic of vietnamese forces are breaking the, everyone's breaking neutrality but there's the border there that the 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 communists can slip back and forth on um and and you know it's joined by uh these plantations 
And so um, what the Americans, and you see this in the archives from uh, National uh, Archives in, in uh, College Park, um, are really intent in uh, uh, taking out this plantation uh, uh, landscape from use, from Vietnamese use. And so they have, they, uh, you know, sometimes spray it with uh, herbicides, uh, commonly known as Agent Orange, and of course the French Companies like Michelin sue the U.S. government for doing that. Um, they uh, claim, uh, you know, military right of way, and they just they plow under rubber trees on the sides of roads, um, the in, including on Vietnamese plantations. And they Vietnamese try to get money for this, but they're um, the U.S. military is protected by uh, international law for not having to pay uh, much for these uh, war-related damages. Um, and so, uh, you know, largely it's an assault on uh, the plantation landscape. And, you know, in terms of labor, you have the daily violence of the Vietnam War, where um, really many rubber workers talk about being caught between the communist at night and the uh, Republic of Vietnamese, uh, Vietnam government during the day. And so um, rubber workers are, you know, there are many who are active in the communist movement, but there are many who just... Are, are either neutral or, you know, um, don't want to get involved. And so uh, their lives become uh, extremely difficult. And uh, it's, you know, as, as plantation after plantation starts to shut down because of uh, violence into the 1970s, uh, work, rubber workers have uh, very little uh, options in terms of how they're going to earn a living. And so um, you have this, uh, you know, growing number of unemployed workers who have to be find find their their livelihood yeah and and the communist party has a somewhat uh complicated relationship with the rubber workers unions correct yes they they do uh there is a um you know the 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 communist party uh, really likes to point towards its um its management uh and, and support from the rubber workers and um and and you know there are times when the rubber workers uh find it advantageous to, to emphasize this, uh, this, this, um, mixing of, of communism and rubber worker activity. Um, but there's definitely, uh, uh, rubber active, rubber worker activism and labor strikes that exist outside the framework of the communist, uh, rubber unions. And so you can see, uh, you know, some of the different, uh, many, many different unions organized at this time. And, um, some of the rubber worker unions are organized by, uh, and, uh, you know, the Catholic workers and the more general, um, South Vietnamese unions, uh, some are organized by the, the communist led unions. Um, but it's, it's by no means, uh, are all the rubber workers organized under the uh, communist, uh, driven communist controlled unions, labor unions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, which leads me to my my final question on the book. Um, and by way of conclusion, you discuss rubber in post-war Vietnam. So, how did a united Vietnam under Communist Party rule deal with plantation agriculture as a system of production, especially considering that the um, the party spent so much time vilifying the plantations um, and condemning the plantations as the worst excesses of the colonial system. So how does the, how does the the party now run plantations and and how important is rubber in contemporary the contemporary Vietnamese economy? Well, part of this uh, 
answer will come from the graduate student who looks at the archives for post-1975 rubber. I think the details are still, uh, you know, largely to, to be sketched out in many, many interesting insights. But um, in general, you see, even in the 60s, this uh, growing uh, attempt to appropriate the rubber plantations as both uh, national space, but as communist space, particularly in terms of the North Vietnamese government. And so, uh, you know, for example, you see um, money being put out where uh, rubber workers are working in a mechanized plantation landscape. Uh, you see um, uh, posters, uh, you know, uh, being produced that uh, call, uh, you know, rubber and, and sort of show how rubber can support a, a, a communist socialist government. Um, and so you you have that. Uh, growing uh, appropriation, symbolic appropriation, but then you have the real reality after 1975 that the plantations are in ruins, right? You have your your labor force is dispersed. Um, your the plantations have been heavily damaged by the war. Uh, you've lost most of your expertise in terms of rubber growing. You, there are a few experts like Dan Van Vin and uh, some you know planter. Uh, 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 rubber managed Vietnamese rubber specialists who stay in Vietnam after 1975, but many many of them leave. Um, and so rebuilding the the infrastructure and the labor force uh, is is very hard for uh, the the communist government. And um, not until the 1990s and especially in the 2000s uh, is the is the you know does rubber really become a force? And then it becomes uh, again, quite important in, in Vietnam. So obviously by the 2000s, Vietnam has a much different economy than it did in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. Um, and, and rubber is not the, the leading export in South Vietnam. Rice is once again uh, that. It, but um, rubber generates, I mean, I think it's like two to $3 billion a year at some points in the, the mid 2000s. In 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 earnings and especially uh, from selling to China. So this is you know when, when China's economy is really taking off, um, they're buying all the rubber they can and using it for all kinds of things. You know now uh, a lot of natural rubber is used for very high high quality things. Uh, you know medical gloves, um, airplane tires, uh, things that are involve uh, yeah much better quality of rubber and a lot of the um, low quality uh, uh, uses of rubber or things like motorbike tires and those kinds of things um, are actually uh, synthetic rubber fulfills most of that demand. Um, are they importing the synthetic rubber? What's that? Are they importing synthetic rubber? You mean, you mean Vietnamese? Yeah. Is it, it's a synthetic imported into Vietnam or are they also producing synthetic rubber? No. So uh, um, most of the rubber being produced in Vietnam is, is natural and uh, most of the kind of processing of rubber is still taking place outside of Vietnam. So there are, there are some, um, you know, tire manufacturing plants that are uh, springing up in Vietnam, which um, I, didn't, I haven't looked into this quite uh, a lot, but um, that, that may be using some imported synthetic rubber. Um, but most of the Vietnam plantations are still producing the, uh, the cash crop, the commodity, and then the value-added work is being done elsewhere. Still to a large right? degree. 
right? Now, the, the similarity, another similarity with the colonial era is that um, plantations also are becoming, rubber plantations in particular, are becoming um, these ways in which the uh, Vietnamese government is able to expand influence into Laos and Cambodia. And so many of the same issues that arise when, that arose when uh, French and Belgian plantations were expanding, expanding into the Red Earth region uh, are recurring in Laos and Cambodia these days. So land grab and um, people being kicked off their land. It's, it's uh, unfortunately you have an echo of that going on. Yeah. One, one of the things that I saw this year, I was, I lived in uh, Cambodia for five months in, uh, in Siem Reap. And one of the phenomenon is that there's a uh, dramatic increase in tourists uh, from the People's Republic of China. And one of the things that's uh, pitched to them is buying natural latex mattresses. And there's this whole um, industry of marketing locally produced uh, mattresses to uh, to Chinese tourists. Yeah, wow. So um, that's, that's we've taken a... up a lot of your time. I really appreciate that. It's been a fascinating conversation. But before we let you go, we've got one more question. And um, now this first book is done, what are you working on? So what can we hope to see from you in the near future? So I am building on some of the work in the first book and uh, taking it in a slightly different direction. I'm looking at, um, for a second uh, book project, uh, Vietnamese efforts to uh, resist environmental warfare during the Cold War. And so I, you know, um, Jacob Hamlin has a book called Arming Mother Nature, which is uh, a few years old now, but he talks about environmental warfare um, and its occurrence. He references Vietnam was one of his chapters, and so I'm thinking that I will call it uh, "Disarming Mother Nature," but this is a provisional title right now. Um, but the the point of the book would be, and this is how I have it in my mind right now, is that um, you know there's been work done on herbicides and in Agent Orange and environmental warfare in Vietnam, but a little. X has been done to explore, at least in English, um, the history to resist efforts uh, or to resist environmental warfare. And so one of my arguments is that these uh, efforts to resist environmental warfare from, uh, you know, looking at um, some archival material from the 1950s, um, is that it's, it's drawing on older ideas of coping with natural disasters and how you cope with uh, typhoons or floods. And so, you know, in order to cope with these, um, the, you know, potential of biological warfare that the, the Americans or the French might use or uh, climate warfare that was used during the Vietnam War or um, herbicides, you can look to, um, you know, both, uh, you know, kind of contemporary ideas about hygiene and, and things, and but also older ideas about how to um, think about natural disaster or relief efforts. Um, and then on the other hand, this resistance to environmental warfare um, would, and I, you know, have to um, expand on this, but it also helps contribute to some environmental, early environmental consciousness in Vietnamese society, uh, such as it is. So one of the first moments when uh, people in Vietnam become aware that, uh, you know, uh, nature can be uh, uh, problematic in a, in a modern sense, I guess, pollution, chemicals and things like that, um, is during 
uh, sadly, the, the the Cold War, when uh, Vietnamese society is, is largely the, the target of environmental warfare activities. Right. Well, that, that sounds fantastic. Uh, I can't wait to see that. Um, get to work so that we can get you back on the uh, on the podcast and talk about that book. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mike. I would appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, you know, thank you so much for your time, Mitch. Um, this is really, really a fascinating conversation about just a, just a great book. Yeah, thank you. I, I had a lot of fun. Yep, this has been a conversation with Professor Michitake Esso of State University of New York, Albany, about his new book, Rubber and the Making of Vietnam, an Ecological History, 1897 to 1975. I'm Michael Van of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you so much for listening.